0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Gun restrictions have become more difficult since a Supreme Court ruling a few years ago, but Democrats in the state legislature aren't deterred.
1: Some Democrats have been wary of butting up against those legal restrictions. They want anything that passes to be implemented, not tied up in the courts or struck down. Others say they still want to push forward with what they think is the right thing to do. And I think we can see that by the broad scope of bills introduced thus far.
0: Then a straightforward solution to political discord. Join a club.
2: If you're lonely and all you're getting is the YouTube channel, Of the algorithm telling you what to think about politics. Mm. That's very different than showing up every week at a local Rotary Club meeting and working on local issues, which usually grounds and disciplines you in the reality of American
3: life.
1: Hi, I'm Marnie Myers, and my husband and I donated his beloved PT Cruiser to Colorado Public Radio. We had a car sitting in our driveway for a number of years because we couldn't find the title. We finally sat in line, got the title, they took the car, it was easy. We chose to donate it for two reasons. One, we wanted the car out of our driveway and two, we wanted to give it to a good cause. It is really easy to donate your car at (music) CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Gun restrictions have gotten harder to make happen after the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that any restrictions must have a pedigree dating back to the country's founding. But that hasn't stopped Democrats in Colorado's legislature from introducing a wide array of gun laws this year. Here to break them down for us is CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland. Hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. Let's start with possibly the most significant and controversial of these bills. Uh, For the second year in a row, a group of lawmakers is trying to ban what they refer to as assault-style weapons.
1: Yes, that's right. This is the second year Colorado Democrats have unveiled an assault weapons ban. Last year, a bill failed by one vote. (laughs) And essentially, this would ban the sale and transfer of assault weapons. One thing to note, unlike some bans in other states... Colorado's proposal would not ban the possession of assault weapons, so people who already own these types of firearms would be allowed to keep them. Democratic Representative Tim Hernandez of Denver is the main sponsor. He was appointed to the legislature a few months ago, so this is his first session. He's a former high school teacher and, at age 26, Colorado's youngest state lawmaker.
4: I think it's going to keep our communities safer. It's going to keep my generation that are in schools safer and ultimately prevent mass shootings, which although I, I will be the first to admit is a microcosm of gun violence in our country, is a really important way that we have to meet the issue with what our communities are asking us to.
0: Hmm. Okay, so to underscore, it does not ban the current holding of these assault-style weapons, but their sale and transfer. Um, Democrats control the legislature, but last session, A similar bill couldn't make it past its first committee. I think that's what you were talking about. You said it failed by one vote. Uh, Do you foresee this year's bill having any more success?
1: First, I would say this issue is sure to polarize the statehouse. Republicans are universally opposed to it. They say it's unconstitutional and ineffective. Democrats are also divided. They express varying degrees of support and then also concern about how such a ban would be enforced. Mm. But I do see this proposal having a better chance this session. Two of the Democratic no votes on that committee are no longer on the House Judiciary Committee. This is where the bill will get its first public hearing at the Capitol. Also, Democrats in the House have such a wide majority. So if it does get out of committee, and even if every Republican opposes this bill, Democrats can lose 13 votes and still get it out of that chamber. However, that doesn't mean it's clear sailing through the state Senate, which has a narrower committee margins, or that Governor Jared Polis would sign it if it reaches his desk.
0: Well, what else are Democratic lawmakers proposing?
1: Another proposal is to add new requirements for concealed carry permits. So it would require people to have a certain number of hours of live fire training and set curriculum guidelines for instructors. The bill had a lengthy hearing. It passed its first committee. Opponents say it will increase fees and is a burden. Missy Espinoza testified against the measure. She says she was a victim of an armed home invasion and having a concealed carry permit really gives her peace of mind.
4: What we have in place now to get a concealed carry permit is already more than we should have to do, constitutionally speaking. We don't need to add anything, no more. There is not a sudden rise in permit holders accidentally shooting someone. There's not a sudden need to add any further requirements to what is already in place.
0: Now, you've written about a bill, Benta, to to ban people from carrying guns in a whole range of places, open carry and concealed carry. Um, That sounds significant.
1: Yes. And this is a Senate bill. It would bar Colorado gun owners from carrying firearms in a wide array of public places in the state. So this doesn't just apply to open carry, but concealed carry as well. There's a long list of locations outlined in the bill. Government buildings, hospitals, churches, bars, public parks, rec centers, zoos, political rallies, demonstrations, other places as well. Republican Representative Matt Soper of Delta says he thinks there is no way something like this, even if it passed, would hold up in court.
4: To basically ban firearms and then to ban where you can have firearms is effectively fully disarming Coloradans. And I just, I just can't see the courts saying that falls in line with the Second Amendment or falls in line with Colorado's constitutional version of the Second Amendment.
0: There have been complaints over the years that Colorado passes stricter gun laws, then fails to enforce them. Are lawmakers trying to do anything about that?
1: That's a top priority for Democratic Representative Meg Froelich. She's worked on this issue for a number of years. She's sponsoring measures this session to give the Colorado Bureau of Investigation authority to investigate firearms crimes, and then another bill to create a merchant code for firearm purchases to let banks potentially track suspicious gun purchases.
4: For me and a few other folks, the real focus is turning towards implementation and enforcement. I feel like we've done a lot of good work and you know how hard it is to pass the, these bills out, out of the legislature. And so I want our good work on whether it's three-day waiting period or safe storage or 21 or magazine limits or any of the things that we've checked off our list, which I think have, can have real effects, but we need implementation at the local level.
0: As we mentioned at the start, Bantel, looming over all of this is that Supreme Court ruling, the Bruin decision, which raised the bar on what kinds of gun restrictions states can impose. Our sponsors worried about that with these bills, and, and we certainly heard Matt Soper hint at this.
1: The legal landscape is much less favorable for states to pass stricter gun laws because of that decision. The Supreme Court did say that any new restrictions have to be in line with historic precedent. I think some Democrats have been wary of butting up against those legal restrictions. They want anything that passes to be implemented, not tied up in the courts or struck down. Others say they still want to push forward with what they think is the right thing to do, regardless of the decision. And I think we can see that by the broad scope of bills introduced thus far.
0: I have to imagine any that do pass we'll see immediate legal challenges. I mean, these go into effect and it's like minutes later, there's a press release in our inboxes that says they filed suit.
1: Absolutely. I talked to Taylor Rhodes, who heads the Second Amendment advocacy nonprofit Rocky Mountain Gun Owners. He said he's already lining up money and sponsors to file a lawsuit immediately should some of these proposals pass, such as the concealed carry restrictions and an assault weapons ban. The group is already part of multiple lawsuits against Colorado over several recent gun laws, Mm. including the requirement that people be 21 or older for gun purchases, the state's new three-day waiting period for gun purchases, and the ban on constructing or possessing what's known as ghost guns. And these are guns that don't have a serial number on them.
0: Benta, thank you.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: CPR Public Affairs reporter Benta Berkland with an overview of gun proposals this session at the state capitol. Be right back with the hidden power of joining a club. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Every winter, ice climbers descend upon a plunging gorge in the Colorado mountains. The Ure Ice Park
4: has nearly two miles of ice climbing routes, all made by a small, skilled bunch. We're humble ice farmers. On cold nights, they use
0: water to create towering ice walls. Meet an ice farmer and see pictures of his frosty crop at CPR.org. The partisan divide in this country can feel relentless. And if you're like me, you're hungry for solutions. It turns out, one of them is pretty
2: simple. Join a club. There is no America without clubs. But what happens when a nation built on associations stops saying, sign me up, and starts saying, I'm not really a joiner? this is a film about why you should join a club and why the fate of America depends on it.
0: A clip from the new documentary, Join or Die. As the title suggests, it isn't just about strengthening democracy through membership. It's about how associating with one another is good for our health. The film is based on the trailblazing career of Harvard political scientist, Robert Putnam.
3: We discovered that in some regions, there was a dense network of social and civic engagement. People were involved in in politics, but not just in politics. They were connected with one another. We used a measure of where were people involved in reading groups and singing clubs and football games. Things like newspaper readership, measures of social trust, the the degree to which people trust one another.
2: From these measures, Bob was able to order the regions from least civic to most civic. And when he graphed this new factor against government performance,
0: it was a straight line. Putnam's 2000 book, Bowling Alone, forged fans across the political spectrum. And one of his former students, Pete Davis, co-directed this new film, Join or Die. It was part of the most recent Denver Film Festival, and I spoke with Davis beneath the big screen after a showing. Pete, thank you for speaking with me. Yes, happy to be here. As we heard, you opened the film with the idea that the fate of America rests on joining clubs. Yes. But I want to dig a little deeper into how getting together prolongs life, thus join or die expound on this idea of expectancy for
2: us. We have a very menacing title. Many people thought it was like a horror movie going in, but it's it's the most hunky-dory movie. And sorry about I'm having a health thing right now with my laryngitis, but we wanted to choose the title because we think the stakes are really, really high for America. You know, and it was based on Ben Franklin's original political cartoon, the first famous political cartoon in American history that said, if you don't join up with the other states, we're not going to last as a country, and our message was for the country, you know, if you don't join up in clubs, we're not gonna last as a country. But there is a second aspect to this. There is a total connection between joining and your own health. And we touched on it a bit in the movie. You know, Bob mentions joining a club is as good as quitting smoking. Um, So if you wanna keep smoking, you know, he often says, if you wanna keep smoking, make sure to join a few extra clubs. but there's this amazing researcher, we only add her for thirty seconds in the film, Julianne Holt Lundstad. And she's out of Brigham Young, and she's done all of the health and community studies. It would have taken up too much of the movie, but when we interviewed her, she literally walked through like every organ system and says there's a study out there that says if you're part of community that your cholesterol is better, your lungs are better, your Alzheimer's is delayed, you heal more from wounds when you feel a connection with other people. And that all adds up to mortality. As Bob said, your chances of dying in the next year are cut in half by joining one club.
0: Your comments about, it was Benjamin Franklin, yeah. about the states makes me think that even today we think of the states, states' rights, as individualistic. Colorado is different from Utah, yeah. not sealed together.
2: Yeah, you know, one of our goals with this movie was to push back on the American story of the only part of the American story being hyper-individualism. So there's an American spirit of individualism. Part of the Revolutionary War was this independence from Britain. But there's a whole counter-history that balances this all out of us being a very communitarian country. So for example, the reason that democracy sprang up in America is because we had 100 years of joining clubs before the Revolution. There was already a culture of joining that allowed for the revolution, and let alone every other revolution throughout American history. The abolitionists were meeting for 40 years before the Civil War. If you look at Martin Luther King's memoir on the Montgomery bus boycott, it's called Stride Toward Freedom. The first chapter is incredibly tedious because it gets exciting later, but the first chapter is so boring because all he does in the first chapter is list off all the clubs in Montgomery that he got to know. There was a bricklayers union that lent him a building. There was a women's organization that was like one of the first women's clubs there. There was all of the different churches where he got to know all the pastors. Then there was an organization of all the pastors. Rosa Parks, she's famous for you know, sitting down on the bus at this big sparking moment, but One of our goals with this film is to talk about the other side of Rosa Parks. She was secretary of the Montgomery NAACP for 10 years before she sat down on the bus. It was her club going and her meeting going and running that led her to be one of the civic leaders and all of those different civic clubs are the reason that when she lit the spark, the tinder was already gathered. So if we want to change right now in this country, It's going to happen in 30 years. you just got to start meeting in club meetings right now. Now. That's one of our messages. (laughs) So um, it's not going to happen with a silver bullet. We have to start laying the tinder.
0: Okay, it's one thing to join a club, but how active do you have to be in it? Like, what what kind of time commitment are we talking about?
2: (laughs) I I mean it. In other
0: words, if my name appears on the roster.
2: Let me say this. Time is a very interesting thing with time and energy and club life obviously there's something to do with time and the lack of clubs. And you know, we were really glad to include that Eddie Cloud quote in there where he said, if you're working 40, 50, 60 hours a week, it's hard to go to a school board meeting at the end of the day. So I think weekday shortening, a culture of employers understanding that civic life is part of someone's life. Just like when you have a kid, you get paternity leave. If you say, I got to leave work early to set up for a potluck for my neighborhood, that should be normal because what you're doing is contributing to our country when you're doing that. It's
0: like guards. well,
2: Well, one of the messages of this movie is these tiny little things from the most serious political activism to you running the pickleball league in your neighborhood all help democracy. So time is part of this. But when we go out and anecdotally interview, it's really bizarre because the people that are part of four clubs already are the most likely to join a fifth. (laughs) it's not the people who have all the time from having zero clubs and it's like that old saying if you want to get something done ask a busy person and what we find is that people get addicted to joining and usually the problem we have in this country is we have kind of a bimodal system where there's a lot of people who say I'm not really a joiner and then we have people who are part of five clubs um, and so our message for the people that are part of five clubs is keep at it you're the foundation of our democracy for people that are on the sidelines we hope this is a little nudge that the next time your neighbor wants you to come instead of staying home and watching you know Netflix or something you go out and do it.
0: Pete Davis I don't like how McCarthyist this sounds list your memberships <laughs>
2: Um, I recently joined a book club in D.C., and I was very happy about that. One. Um, I'm also part of a housing advocacy organization in this church. And housing's a big part of it. I only have two. But I will tell two stories about our crew. Um, it's very good I joined those just in time for the tour to not be a hypocrite. <laughs> and Bob Putnam's like hardly part of any club at all, so he's a real hypocrite. I'm very proud. My sister, who is my co-director of this movie, we were very helped by a wonderful organization of freelance... Videographers and filmmakers everywhere called the Video Consortium. We've been helped by the reality of film festivals, which are themselves an outgrowth of clubs. And we are really proud that so many members of our crew, from the cameraman to, you know, sound engineers, they're all part of unions. Mm. And it's been a very exciting uh, story of unions in the film industry during the making of this.
0: Your film got me thinking about political parties. Yes, in Colorado, the largest voting block now is unaffiliated, yes. followed by Democrats and then Republicans. Do you think the decline in political affiliation is related to fewer of us being in clubs?
2: Parties used to be clubs. When my grandfather was the alderman of Riverside, Illinois, in the Daily Machine in Chicago, first off, Richard Daly, the mayor of Chicago, knew my grandfather, even though he was just a little district person, because the most important people were not the big donors. It was the people that ran the local chapters in the different parties.
0: Wait, are you idealizing the Daly machine
2: in Chicago? What was very, there are many horrible things about these corrupt party systems. He's a bad example. But when parties used to have more of a culture of really knowing people in their neighborhoods, that the chapter, you know, I walk through my town of Falls Church, Virginia. I walk through at night at 8 p.m. when the Democratic Party, you know it's a blue city, so we could do the same for the Republicans and Fox News, but in my blue city, I walk through the town at eight o'clock at night, the same time when the Democratic local committee meeting is meeting and glowing through the windows of every screen in my town is Rachel Maddow telling everyone what to feel about politics. And all those people watching Rachel Maddow or people watching Tucker Carlson or whoever, they all think, I'm being political right now. I'm a political junkie. Meanwhile, at the Democratic Party Club meeting, there's only eight people showing up. The parties have not invested in the community aspect. They come to you every two years or four years, and they say, give us money and give us votes. What parties used to be is a normal part of your daily life, like every month meeting up.
0: Oh, this is a fascinating dichotomy of, you know, people all watching a glowing screen thinking they're part of a community. Yes. And two blocks away, there's a fairly empty church hall with mediocre coffee that's waiting for you to show up.
2: Yeah, you're, you're literally sitting and watching and being like, oh my gosh, in a town 500 miles away, someone is doing something horrible. You know, and it's important to be bound together as a country and care about other towns. But meanwhile, right next door, because we've become so disembedded and motivated through anger, through our screens, we're disinvesting in solving these problems and addressing these problems right next to us. I don't want this to be just a thing for parochialism, but, We know we have to care about people all over, but it has to be embodied care. It has to be actually doing it, actually meeting up, putting in the day-in, day-out work.
0: So maybe MAGA is a great club.
2: (laughs) One thing you notice, actually, the types of people that get drawn to extremism in political life, and especially into... Areas where people are only connecting with people very similar to them instead of people different than them, which is what we need. We need a lot of not just bonding connections, but also bridging connections.
0: Right. It's not that you want... A homogeneous club.
2: Yes, well, you know, homogeneous clubs do civic work. You know, they take care of their own members. But in a multiracial democracy, you also need bridging clubs across class lines, across religious lines, across political lines, across racial lines, across national lines. And one thing we see is that there is a correlation between political extremism and being disembedded from actual in-person clubs. Because if you're lonely and all you're getting is the YouTube channel of the algorithm telling you what to think about politics Mm. that's very different than showing up every week at a local Rotary Club meeting and working on local issues, which usually grounds and disciplines you in the reality of American life.
0: Move away from the algorithm.
2: Yes, close down the screen, go to the meeting.
0: We're hearing from Pete Davis, co-director of the new film Join or Die, about the importance of club life It's based on the groundbreaking research of Harvard political scientist Robert Putnam. We spoke in November. Coming up, is Putnam something of a tragic figure? He spent a career touting the benefits of association to presidents and pundits alike, and yet the US feels as fractured as ever. Plus a daycare experiment, and how a club changed my life. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
3: Barney Ford escaped slavery in Virginia in the mid-1800s, taught himself to read and write, and eventually came to Colorado with his wife, Julia, seeking a fortune in gold. Once here, he learned that mine claims were denied to African Americans, so the entrepreneurial Ford made other opportunities for himself. First, a barbershop, destroyed in the great Denver fire of 1863. Then other businesses, including hotels, and eventually he became known as the king of restaurateurs and a civic leader, nominated to the Territorial Legislature in 1873 where he worked to get universal suffrage in the new state constitution. As he wrote his enslaver many years earlier, I can do better by myself than I can with you. And he proved it many times over with far-reaching and pioneering efforts for black Americans. A Colorado Postcard from CPR, with the support of Coble and Company. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News
0: and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The documentary Join or Die is about how joining a club might help heal the country, not to mention heal you. Pete Davis co-directed the film with his sister Becky. The central character is Harvard political scientist Robert Putnam, author of the 2000 bestseller Bowling Alone, The Collapse and Revival of American Community. Let's get back to my conversation with Pete, recorded at a Denver movie theater in November. Putnam's work imploring us not to bowl alone, to borrow from his book title, has not reversed the trend of dwindling club life. Do you think that makes him a tragic figure, Pete?
2: You know, someone asked me at our last Q&A, have the trends turned around since your movie came out? And I said, well, that's the hope. (laughs) <laughs> but um, it's only been, you know, six months or something. There is this sad story of Bob, which is, you know, he got four presidents in a row and their opponents and millions of people buying Bowling Alone and everyone being assigned this an intro to political science classes to read Bowling Alone and care about this issue. It went viral, but it didn't change. And part of kind of the last area is Bob trying to find that hope of what happened. And Bob speaks to what both Bob believes in what Becky and I believe as directors of this, is that the problem with the last communitarian wave, it's called the last spirit of community that happened in the 90s, was we didn't go deep enough. We thought if you just sprinkle a few more clubs or sprinkle a few more volunteering or be a little nicer to your neighbor, that's gonna change the culture of this country. But what we need to do is we actually need to go institution by institution and ask deeply how can we reform this institution to be more community-spirited, to fight isolation? If you're working in housing, how can we have mixed income developments that have lead to cross-class bridging? How can we have more co-housing? Has anyone heard of co-housing? It's a really cool model where they're shared amenities, but it's not as extreme as a commune. If you're in urban design, you gotta think about how do we design our streets and our cities to lead to more spontaneous interactions. If you're in uh, running a business, how can you be building community with your customers? How can you be building community with your workers? How can you be allowing your workers to participate in other communities? Mm. And part of the economy here too is unions and co ops. Finally, in health, one of the most successful interventions is AA and 12 step programs. Yeah. It is not done by professionalized experts. It's not done with a big giant grant. It's done by having the prescription be more community and more meaning and more purpose.
0: I love this because it tells me that membership is not the sole vehicle for achieving this. I can look at my role in my profession or my job and ask how it can be more connective.
2: Totally. There's different parts of social capital. There's informal, like when you're friends with your neighbor, that's social capital. What we mostly talked about here is associational life. That's like the technical term for it, clubs. And then there's institutions that have community spirit in them. Let me give one more example. Um, Mario Small, this researcher at Columbia, sociologist, kind of influenced a bit by Putnam, he did a study where they had a daycare And being a parent, an early parent of young kids is really lonely. And it's the time where you can't really join clubs because you got kids running around at home. He did an experiment where they had one kids at a daycare that was the neutral placebo. They had another daycare where they had a party at the beginning of the year for all the parents. And they said, we want you as parents, we're not just gonna take care of your kids during the day. We want you as parents to get to know each other. The kids' outcomes in the latter group ended up diverging from the kids in the former group because their parents were friends with each other because of a party that was thrown at the beginning of the year. And so I just think about all these different ways. That's not a club, that's a daycare deciding to do something differently.
0: Are these inherently capital D democratic ideas versus capital R republican ideas? In other words, it, as it, you were talking it, yeah. just then, I thought of Hillary Clinton's book, which I think it was called It Takes, it Takes a Village. A village.
2: Yeah, well,
4: and the,
0: the sort of bootstrap notion that undergirds a lot of more conservative ideals might press against this.
2: Bob's one of the like last people in America that's like loved bipartisanly, <laughs> like him and Dolly Parton or something. Um, it's uh, he, you know, the person that invited him to Congress when he was testifying in Congress was Mike Lee, a, a, like a Trump supporting Republican senator. The person in the clip who said. Bob Putnam's a genius. If I could give anyone a book to read, that was Ben Sass, a Republican senator from Nebraska. Wow. What Bob speaks to on the liberal side, it speaks to kind of community over hyper individualism and bootstraps. On the conservative side, it says a church group does a lot of work. Yes. Bob says if you would rather have 10% more cops on the beat or 10% more neighbors knowing each other's first names, my research shows, Bob's research. You'd rather have 10% more neighbors knowing each other's first names. That sounds like a defund the police person, you know, that says, you know, we don't need these bureaucratic armed cops bringing safety. We can bring safety by knowing each other. That sounds really lefty. But then he says, I love teachers. We're all team teachers. But then he says, if you could have 10% more teachers or 10% more parents involved in the schools, 10% more community connections among the parents around the school, I'll take the latter. And so it's not always necessarily more funding to Mm. these social service institutions. Mm. You also need to supplement that with the community aspect to it, too. So there's things that cross cut in different ways.
0: I thought I would share briefly how a club changed my life. Oh, I love it. Oddly, it's one I've never been a member of, but the Rotary Club, in addition to wiping out polio in many places, sponsors exchange students. And they sent me to France and they changed the direction of my life. And so it occurred to me, Pete, that not just membership is important, but the impact On the broader community, perhaps of non-members. That is
2: one of the central insights of Bob's work, which is that you don't even need to be communal or part of the community to get the benefit of it. Your government runs better. People are healthier. There's safer streets. There's better schools. You are protected by the community, so you don't even need to join, but- If eventually too many people are free riders on others joining, then you don't even get the benefit of that. So we we still need people to join the Rotary Club to get you that.
0: Yes. Experience. Yeah.
2: But that's a great example. And Rotary, totally amazing international story that's underreported on. You go to the farthest reaches, you know, in the rural area in a country And there's a Rotary Club meeting happening there because some guy in Chicago decided to meet up with four friends. It's like an amazing story of international
0: And you don't have polio today in part because of Rotary. (laughs) Amen. I love the expert in your film who said, this isn't rocket science. It's a learnable skill that anyone can get better at. What's your advice for someone who isn't sure what club to join?
2: Oh, that's great. Well, I like that point because, you know, one of the things that we're trying to say here is that civic muscles atrophy. When you don't join for a long time or if you've never joined, you don't have the civic muscles and you think I'm civically weak. These meetings are too weird. I don't know how to get along with people. I can't stay consistent. But just like working out at the gym suddenly you can lift heavier things or run farther. And that's why people who join one club end up joining five because civic life becomes easier, normaler, more smooth because they built up those civic muscles. Our whole message is just join and sit through the valley of awkwardness a little bit longer than you usually would. Mm. Go to the first meeting, if it's awkward, go to the second, maybe hold out for the third. If it's bad after the third, find a different club, it's okay, you can quit try to just linger a little longer because all the gifts of it are like the further deeper you go in it.
0: Before we take some audience questions, perhaps we could end on a musical note. Oh, I love that. Okay. You briefly invoke songbooks in your documentary. Yes. Unions used to publish songbooks. Yep. Workers would sing together in union halls. Yep. It occurs to me that very few of us, Pete, sing together. I'm not asking you to do that now. Yeah. <laughs> kind of Captain and Tennille. But, you know, this is a side effect, perhaps, of what Putnam is describing.
2: That songbook that we showed when I said songbook in the narration, we had to choose among, like, 50 that are in the archives. You know, every club had a songbook, every union had a songbook. There was a Postals Worker Union band. We had their photo in the background at one point. (laughs) This is a huge part of this. I highly recommend making music together. One thing we didn't get into in the film is, like, musical scenes, like the punk rock scene of DC or whatever, they're kind of like clubs. Ah. Um, Like if you see the same 14 folks at the different shows around town, that's kind of like getting at Social Capital too if you start becoming friends because of that scene, even though it's not formal. So collective music is one of those like fast way paths to feeling the connection and feeling the purpose. So more clubs should start, uh, write songbooks.
0: But that makes me think fundamentally the club I should join is the one that speaks to my heart and to my passion. Yeah, you know, Like if you start there, you're probably in, in good That's step. why we
2: put that line from Zara, the bike um, activist, where she said, you know, this is just something I wanted. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that's why we put the Hillary quote about if if there's not a club you want to join, create one. And the one you should create is the one you want to do. The whole path towards transforming your heart converting your heart to be more communal spirited kind of getting us out of this hyper individualist age is asking ourselves what are things i want to do or what are things that i need that could be done together sure there's an app that might give you some semblance of doing it alone sure maybe if you you could do it alone if you really wanted to but Choosing more of those things to do together is the path to this. And it doesn't need to be eat your broccoli. One of our goals with this movie is civic life is not eat your broccoli. I <laughs> mean, but shout out to everyone who's doing like hardcore, concrete, explicit political work too. my recommendation to them is make sure every other meeting is fun. You know, if you have a business meeting, make sure the next one's a potluck. So or yeah. yeah, do a potluck, you know, while you're doing the business meeting about the next activist thing.
0: Clubs present an opportunity to spend time with people who are different from you, something Harvard political scientist Robert Putnam thinks this country needs more of. His lifelong dedication to this cause is the subject of the film Join or Die. Co-director Pete Davis chatted with me after a screening at the Denver Film Festival in November. Now, questions from the moviegoers.
4: My name is Amy Phillips. I live in Thornton, Colorado. I am also a director of a library, so I will say this is a loaded question. Yep. Bob Putnam in Bowling Alone talks about third spaces and libraries as a third space. How do you see them as being important to the community?
2: Libraries are one of the heroes of the spirit of this film. Like you can speak so much better than I can too, but one thing I've read about is that and seen is that libraries are starting to convert themselves a bit into not just being a place to be quiet and read, but be a place to meet up and be a source of community information and community connection. And libraries are stepping up to the challenge of being these third spaces. For those who don't know what third spaces are, it's not your home. It's not your work. It's a place you can meet in community. And we need more Bars are third spaces, coffee shops are third spaces, libraries are third spaces, parks are third spaces, community pools, if you read Heather McGee's recent new book about the loss of community pools due to racism and segregation, we need a culture bringing back those. All of those are places where people meet up, they're the infrastructure that undergird these meetings. I'm so
0: glad you invoked pools because the Congress park pool in my neighborhood it strikes me as one of the few places in my neighborhood where there is economic diversity. It's like $2 to get into the pool. Totally. Heat. And it, it fills me with goosebumpy joy when I see the complexion of the neighborhood that has come to swim.
2: That is the biggest challenge, you know, probably the biggest challenge in community building right now is how do you have cross-class communities? It's very hard to find. There's also been a privatization of community spaces where Soho House says we're building a community, but there's a huge buy-in cost of doing it. Um, And so we need more of these spaces that bring everyone in and can have some of these cross-class connections.
4: Hey, this is Gordon Matheson from uh, Denver, Colorado. We really need to hear this kind of message right now in America, it's such an angsty time for us. I was watching your film and the whole time I was kind of thinking about this like rural-urban divide in in America right now, and I wonder if you could speak a bit more to the, do you see rural versus urban divides? There are
2: interesting civic histories for super urban spaces and super rural spaces, so just to talk about rural civic history, the 4-H is a famous rural civic club that started in the peak period, the Grange, There's a history of farmers' cooperatives and the farmers' alliance that started the populist movement in the late 1800s that led to the progressive movement, that led to the New Deal. Really interesting rural innovation. The Chautauqua circuit that we mentioned in the movie, these old big tent cities. And so many histories of rural education and rural popular clubs coming around to do popular education about farming techniques and bringing some of the ideas of the city to rural areas. So super interesting history of rural and civics. On bridging, that is the big political divide in America right now. Like people say, oh, we're going to have another civil war where the states divide from each other. But the reddest state in America is like... All the cities in those states are blue, and in the bluest state in America, all the rural areas, most of the rural areas are red. There are some exceptions, but that's most of the case. So the divide in our country, some might say, is a rural-urban divide. So we need to think up civic creatively. Mm. What are ways to bridge this divide? I'll give one example. There's this wonderful org that started called the American Exchange Program, and it was started um, by fans of Bob. It takes high school students, in one type of school, and ask them to an exchange with a high school that's very of a different type. And so it would be like a suburban school or a super inner city school or a super rural school or an Appalachian school, and they switch for a week. And these kids report like, oh my gosh, I think totally differently about America on both sides. It's not just the rich kids going to the poor area or the urban kids go to the rural area and saying, oh, I, I feel things for these people. No, it's not that at all. They're both learning from each other. They're both having fun together. They're not switching at the same time. Like they go to one school and it's the same group of people and then they all go to the, back to the other school. So it's like home welcoming you to each of them. I just think we need more and more examples of that.
0: It's a lovely question. It makes me think of the fact that I grew up in Los Angeles, but in the summer, we would go to Waverly, Iowa, where extended family had a farm with a combine and with grain elevators. And it opened my eyes as an urbanite to how others lived. Yep, totally. Next, Derek Frey of Denver raises the issue of youth mental health, and Davis is quick to respond.
2: This is one of the most studied things. I get alerts every time like a new community study comes out. Half of them are youth mental health studies. The surgeon general who was in the movie just did a report on youth mental health and he's also doing a report on loneliness and and isolation. They're totally connected. Another study came out matching all the other studies which is literally every generation reporting on what was life like when you were 17 all the way to current 17 year olds. And it tried to avoid the nostalgic glow by asking really specific, concrete questions like, "Did you hang out with friends at the movies? Did you have a girlfriend? Did or you know a partner or boyfriend? Or did you um, go on adventures without adult supervision?" It's literally every generation is less, 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 and then huge drop off in the post cell phone generation. And then the final kicker was, did you feel isolated and lonely? And it was just up, 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 every subsequent generation with a huge jump in the current generation. Yeah, I think eventually the chickens are coming over the roost of the bowling alone phenomenon because the people that are hurt most by this are the kids. And this isn't just like a nostalgic old person thing to say. It's like literally concretely when there are less of these communal spaces when the cities are not designed for you to be this way, when the culture is designed around fear instead of around opportunity, when there's so much you know economic inequality that you know half the people are in a dangerous situation because of the precarity of everything, let alone the cell phones, but I don't want to linger we tried to not linger on like, oh I the cell phone's too much in the movie because everyone kind of knows that, but all of that adds up, and we're seeing like a result of a group that are victims of our hyper-individualist age. And it's shown up in the mental health data too.
0: It's fascinating because we kept hearing that the internet was about connection. Yep. But I think what I hear you saying is that it's about isolation to some extent.
2: Well, one of the things we like to say is we don't want to be Luddites. The internet is what we want it to be. And if you don't decide how you want to use it, if you don't use it mindfully, you will default to what the platforms want you to be. And the platforms literally measure their own success year over year by if they extracted minutes of eyeballs Mm. or money and add money out of you. So if you're in neutral on the internet, you're going to drift towards isolation. If you're in drive on the internet, you can use a WhatsApp group to... Organize your pickleball league. You can use meetup. You just got to do it mindfully and in a communal spirit. So you use the tools and the tools don't use you. Meal trade. Great example. Yeah, okay. Quick follow-up. Over the last year or two, there's been a lot of conversation that there was throughout the intense COVID years about coming to this community. And so I'm wondering if Is there data showing that that was
4: not just like a temporary bubble of we're gonna come out of COVID and we're gonna want to gather, but we're actually doing it better
2: now? There are people actively studying this now. Like I've seen the grants go out through our time following this. Is the COVID comeback happening in social capital? Mm -hmm. What we're seeing anecdotally on the road, talking to people is clubs already in trouble, already graying, already losing membership. Moving to Zoom for six months, people get Zoom fatigue, and then they start quitting, and they're never coming back. Not all clubs, but many clubs. It's like a restaurant. You you know, if you shut down for two years, it's hard to like just turn the lights back on. Like things mm-hmm. go away, people had to move on, and that's what's happening with clubs. And some clubs, the saddest tragedy is some people say, "Oh, Zoom was easier. Why don't we just keep Zooming?" But that's going to eventually lead to no one being part of it anymore either. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. One of the reasons we're really going hard on touring this film is like, this is the exact moment where we're probably going to crater out at the bottom of like club life because the pandemic was the final death blow. Can I actually share a a very like 30 second poem of how I think about this? It's Wendell Berry's February 2nd, 1968. In the dark of the moon, in flying snow, in the dead of winter, war spreading, families dying, the world in danger. I walk the rocky hillside, sewing clover. I walk the rocky hillside, sewing clover. In community right now, we're on a rocky hillside, and all the symptoms of that are happening, and what we need you to do is sew clover.
4: J.D. Higginbotham, I'm uh, from Lakewood, Colorado. And hey, J.D. And uh, Pete, I enjoyed the film. I'd be curious to see, moving forward, if people are using that extra time and freedom That they got to work from home to dedicate to a new space. Totally. If they used the internet as their tool instead of being more passive and maybe even a victim to it. It's something that I'm very interested in seeing what happens with and if you could take maybe those meetings that were in person (laughs) went to Zoom and died but if you had meetings that People otherwise wouldn't have met and then started in zoom totally. and moved into person Amen. before it got fatigued exactly
2: exactly yeah. you know bob had i remember when I was first reading bowling alone, Bob had this like sad stat where he was asking would you rather have dinner with your neighbors or your coworkers? And he was using it to illustrate the decline of neighboring because coworkers finally passed neighbors. It used to be neighbors and then it became coworkers and he was saying, well, that's a sign. We're disconnecting from our neighbors that people want to like hang out with their coworkers after work. Now we don't even have coworkers for many people, for many people in laptop jobs. And so he couldn't even anticipate that going away. He was citing that as like the last frontier of community and now that's gone, but you pull pointed to the exact thing we can take from it, which is we do know from Bob's research that commuting hurt community. So with that extra time, especially with commuting, with maybe being able to run out for lunch in your town that you live in, could that be an opportunity that we can seize for community making? And to not lose the community benefits of work, can we think up new ways of doing things at work, which everyone's having a convo with in America? Should it be highly intensive community bonding in like quarterly retreats at an office? But then you're on Zoom the rest of the time. All of that is social capital theory. It's all about how do we build connections in a place to get the benefits of those connections? And so a lot of opportunity for civic innovation here.
0: Before we go, how often do you fight against the feeling
2: it's too late? You know, it's never too late. And there are so many crises we face today, we just gotta get started at some point. And some people are already started and I encourage you to join up with them. But if there's something you feel like we're at the beginning of it, you're the real hero. The people that they're gonna make the statues of are the people at the end of it who make the final death blow of the crisis you're trying to solve. But know in your heart, you are the one that did it by being the first person that said, yeah, I'll come join you. Thank you so much. Pete, thank you. Thank you all.
0: Pete Davis co-directed the new documentary Join or Die. We spoke after a screening at the most recent Denver Film Festival. There's a link to the film and ways to watch it with other people at CPR.org. And that is our show for today. With thanks to the Colorado Matters Club,
3: Tyler Bender, Carl Bielik, Anthony Cotton, Pete, Pete Kramer,
4: Molly Cruz, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher,
3: Matt
0: Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro
4: Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Whitfield,
0: and I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News and KRCC.